Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is part of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com. Check out the vast array of arts and culture and music podcasts they have to offer. That is OsirisPod.com. Before we get going, just want to show some appreciation for, uh, I know we have a lot of new listeners and we've received a lot of positive feedback from people and just want to kind of just say thank you. We appreciate everyone listening. It's, it means a lot that you take these journeys with us. So thank you. Um, if anyone ever wants to drop into Apple Podcasts and leave a review, it goes a long way. But either way, we appreciate you. Today, I am proud to present an interview with Jacob Appel, one of the most prolific, most accomplished, yet least boastful people in America. Jacob is an author, poet, bioethicist, physician, lawyer, and social critic best known for his short stories, his work as a playwright, and his writing in the fields of reproductive ethics, organ donation, neuroethics, and euthanasia. He's the director of Ethics, Education, and Psychiatry, and an associate professor of psychiatry and medical education at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. And he practices emergency psychiatry at the adjoining Mount Sinai Health System. Jacob writes for both the Huffington Post and opposing views. He has obtained, get this, 10 degrees from various institutions, including Harvard Law and Columbia Medical School. Jacob is the subject of the 2019 documentary film aptly named Jacob, directed by John Stahl. Stahl's film attempts to answer what makes polymaths like Jacob, who seem to have lived several lives concurrently, so different. It questions if polymaths profound intellect is a gift or a burden while asking if they are happy and satisfied in life. Approaching Jacob through direct interviews and the testimonies of his friends, Stahl considers Jacob through an emotional lens rather than an intellectual one. It's a truly fascinating doc. It you know, really explores everything that Jacob is into, and, and it's, 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 it's such a compelling look at a really, truly fascinating human being. And it's really it's a thrill to have that uh, aforementioned fascinating human being on this podcast because in this episode we um we discuss jacob's writing style and his method before he who is an extremely prolific writer offers advice to writers on the importance of the first line how to deal with editorial rejections and perseverance being the key to success in writing we then discuss what it was like to be the subject of a popular documentary We talk about how Jacob's studies in many fields contribute to his craft, and ultimately, this episode serves as an ode to those in life whose aim is to never stop learning. Talking to Jacob was a whole lot of fun, and I have no doubt you're going to love this interview with Jacob Appel. Good. Perfect timing. This is Michael Shields from Cross Marcher, as, as I'm sure you figured. Thank you. Uh, thanks. I, I assume that. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on the program. I'm happy to happy to of talk course. to you. Um, it's kind of a it's kind of 
fun and, and, and almost difficult to uh, decide where to start. But we have so many, um, we have a lot of writers who listen to the show. And uh, I've been intrigued. I was actually just going through a bunch of your short stories. Uh, uh, um, Prisoners of the Multiverse was the last one I landed on, which is really, really great. Um, I was curious you. if you could um, kind of talk about your uh, your writing some. And, and, and uh, I think a fun place would be to start is... Uh, your characters and kind of what you write about um, are very fascinating. I saw in the um, in the doc uh, they were described as you write about people many of us walk right by, but you know there's so much depth and insight that could be found to to getting to know these unique characters. Could you um, talk a little bit about what type of stories you tell and the, and the characters? Um, and I know it's vast and it's all over the place, but I'd like to hear a little bit about your writing. Sure. So I, I think the key thing to in context is that I'm an emergency room psychiatrist mm. by day. Um, so I hear the most unusual, interesting stories every day, and I can't share them with anyone. <laughs> so one thing that forces me to do is to push my imagination to think about worlds and experiences that mm. are so far out of the norm that even one of my patients couldn't escape them for themselves. But the other half of it is I've discovered, as I've done this now for more than a decade working in an emergency room, that we all walk fairly close to the edge. We just don't realize how close to the edge we are. We see this with a lot of the patients. So many of my, my stories are about people living ordinary lives, not realizing how close they are to the edge, who suddenly find themselves at the edge, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. We all, we, you know, I think we all feel safer than we uh, should in some points. I guess... Uh, that makes me think right away um, is uh, a little bit about process or even just when do, when do you find time to write? When do you write? I know you got a, we'll get into reasons why, but you get a, got a lot on your hands and, and a busy schedule. When do you write? So one thing I always say is people think being a doctor is a hard job, but it's actually a fairly easy job because if you show up at the hospital, six people show up at the hospital. Mm. You never run out of them. You never have to drum up business, which is ah. unfortunate. <laughs> but the reality of it is um, that, when I'm not doing my clinical work, I can really devote my, my psychological attention to writing. Yeah. Um, and unlike some writers who say they write every day and have a very structured method, which certainly works for some people, mm-hmm. I write when I can cobble together the time. Yep. Um, and often that's actually at the hospital. Mm. So I always joke, but it's not completely a joke. When you go to the hospital and you see all those doctors and nurses typing behind the nursing station, and you think they're working on patient care, <laughs> about half of them are working on their novel. <laughs> yeah. um, so I actually often sneak away in the hospital um, when I'm between patients and do some writing. Um, and the structural implication of that is I really have to know what I'm going to be writing about mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. even the structure of my stories before I sit down to write them. Um, Gloria Talley, the, the short story writer, was fond of saying that she did her best writing in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. And, and despite what my students think, um, that does not mean she took her, her laptop into the bath with her. Yeah. It meant that she thought through her stories before before she was going to write, so that when she sat down, she never confronted a blank page. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The dreaded blank page. Um, the uh, uh, the playwright that you uh, uh, studied under in the documentary about you, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, uh, she kind of goes through a, an amazing series of your first lines. And this is something I believe in, um, you know, uh, deeply, just the impact and the importance of nailing that first line. It's something so special. Um, and it's something you have you have a knack for, or you really focus in on. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit on the power or approach to uh, your first lines. 
sure. So I think stories need to have a trajectory. Mm. And the trajectory comes from the opening, whether it's the first line or the first paragraph. And if you start the story headed in the wrong direction, even though it may only be marginally off at the outset, it's sort of like shooting a bullet. By the time it reaches the end, it's going to be way off target. So I try to have opening lines that are both unusual enough that readers are interested, but really set the story in motion toward a logical conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think they, unfortunately, in third grade, a lot of people are taught by their first writing teacher or fifth grade, their story should have a hook and start at a very high level, like today I died. Mm-hmm. But if you begin the story, today I died, there's no next line because what happens tomorrow? Yeah. So yeah. you want to start stories that are high enough in te- at a place high enough intention that you've captivated the reader, but not so high intention that you can only go down from there. Yeah, true, true. You can't set yourself self up for failure right off the bat. Uh, something I want to bring up, uh, just because I'm, you know, I'm in a position where I have to send out many rejection letter myself, and luckily I get the uh, you know honor of sending out many acceptance letters uh, for you know what we publish at across the margin. Um, but I know you've received, uh, you know, your writing so prolific that you've put out so much. You've received a, a handful of rejection letters in your day. And um, I liked hearing about how you dealt with that and just your perseverance behind it. Um, you know, and I guess you're never taking a, a rejection letter personally. I think that's just such great advice. I was wondering if you kind of uh, elaborate on that, what you feel about um, you know, how you've powered through after re- receiving rejection letters in your day and what advice you would give to writers who receive those? Sure. So, so I've now received in um, a career of about 25 years, uh-huh. um, somewhere between 21,000 and 22,000 <laughs> rejections. I actually have a list of them I keep on my computer. And that doesn't even include girls who turn me down for dates in high school. That's just writing. <laughs> so. um, but yeah, so... With that in mind, I always tell people that if you sit on one pin, it hurts very badly. Mm. But if you're a guru who stands on thousands of pins placed very close together, you don't even feel them. If you have all of your hope that's getting one story submitted one time, Mm. obviously it's going to be devastating when it's not accepted. But you're playing the long game. You're thinking of writing in the process. You're sending out each individual story scores of times, and you're writing hundreds of stories then each individual rejection isn't personal. It doesn't weigh very much. It means that not necessarily your story wasn't good, but that a particular journal had different tastes, or it just wasn't the right story for them at the moment. Mm -hmm. I've had stories rejected by editors who later accepted the exact same story. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had journals tell me never submit again, and then an editor came with a different taste, and I was published in those journals. So it's really, you have to think about it as a long-term process rather than one story in the moment. I, I love all that. I love that needles and pins thing. Just that's, I think that's a great way to look at it. And also, um, I think you're so spot on. There's so there's often times where we get what is a very good story that just doesn't fit our aesthetic at the time or just doesn't work for some reason that's not, you know, speaking to the talents of the writer. Or, you know, you got to think that it's, that, I don't know, it's not always that your story's bad, of course, you know. And so that's, that's, that's very, very uh, sound advice. So I got into... Um, uh, the documentary about you. What did you think about being um, the uh, focus of a documentary? Uh, well, the best way to answer this is to describe my, my feelings in hindsight, sure. which are that the one great thing about the pandemic, which there's very little good to be said, is that people started wearing masks mm. so that people stopped recognizing me in public. <laughs> uh, 
because I, I my understanding is that several million people have actually now seen the oh, documentary. Yeah. Yep. Um, and at the height of, of viewing, um, about two months before the pandemic, um, I could truly not go out to eat in a restaurant. Oh, I could wow. not sit in the park without at least one or two people coming up to me and saying, you're the guy from the documentary. Mm. Um, and I often wanted to discuss elements of the documentary that I barely am aware of or remembered. Um, so, so that's the victory. Um, mm. That being said, the director, who's a very nice guy, who I did not know very well before the process, um, is a little bit like Tom Sawyer and that he, um, you know how you boil a frog? Mm-hmm. Um, if you put the frog in hot water, it jumps out. But if you put the frog in cold water and turn the temperature up, um, it doesn't know it's in the hot water until too late. So he calls me and says he wanted to do a documentary. I figured it would take a few hours, a few hundred people would see it. Uh, it turns out that it took over 100 hours and millions of people have seen it. So it's been a surprise. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I mean, but it, it just does speak to the, the fascination of, of the life that you're, you, you, you are living. Um, and it kind of kicks off with uh, the idea that you have, um, you know, how many degrees do you have now? Is it, was it nine degrees I plus the BA? Nine grad. Nine graduate degrees in the VA. Yeah. yeah. What um uh what what has driven you to uh to you know uh, do do all this schooling and, and and chase down these degrees? Well, the, well, the superficial answer is that my mother always says, even now that I'm her son, is not the rabbi. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so you grow up in the home with very high expectations. As I always say, if I win a Nobel Prize, my father would point out that Marie Curie won two Nobel Prizes. <laughs> and, if I, and if I win two Nobel Prizes, he would say, yes, but Marie Curie won them first. So. <laughs> So that's one element, yeah. but I, I think at a more philosophical level, um, in the same way we all write to sort of fill the voids of our childhood, we all pursue, and I'm a psychiatrist, so I see the world this way, we all pursue different goals to fulfill the insecurities, absences, things we're missing in our childhood, even if we're not conscious of it. Um, but at a more conscious level, I really like school. I yeah. always tell people if you like work more than school, you need to go back to school to understand why school is better. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cool point. No, I think I think some of that... That uh, uh, yeah. Once people get past school, they they, they forget how, how fascinating it is, and I mean, it also just shows how how uh, you know uh, the taste, the, the the you know insatiable appetite you have for more knowledge. I was wondering also because as being a writer, um, I'm thinking that you you know the more I'm learning about the world, the more culture I surround myself with, the more I'm out there in the world, the more I can bring back to the page. Is that something that? you know, uh, staying in school and, and always learning. Um, it's, it's something that you can kind of bring into your writing and it kind of all these degrees kind of help complement and round out your, you know, knowledge and worldview. And you bring that back to, to the typewriter or back to the page. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think it's both on the one hand, a mindset you being in school makes you more curious about the world. Mm-hmm. The more you learn, the more you want to learn, the more you realize you don't know, the more you seek to know things. And also it's content driven. Actually just knowing more gives you more ideas for stories. You discover all these things in the world you didn't know were out there. Um, so I think a lot of my stories reflect professional expertise of various sorts. Mm-hmm. Kind of even for fields I know very little about. Um, or didn't haven't studied formally. One thing I like doing is I like immersing myself in a particular world. So I'll write a story about a locksmith and I will go talk to the people at our local locksmith shop and learn the learn the vocabulary so there's there be some degree of authenticity to the story. Totally. 
Um, I, I feel like if you don't immerse yourself to some degree, your stories don't come across as authentic. Absolutely. One of the things I love about this or even writing is just the amount of research I do just because it forces you. If you're going to do a good job and tell a good story or, you know, shine a light on what someone's doing, you got to know your stuff. So it's, it's, we're always growing uh, in the meantime, which is cool. And I was thinking about that. That's definitely what's going on with, uh, you know, you, you always seeking out all this uh, knowledge and everything. I forgot to ask when uh, we were just discussing it, um, just to uh, touch back on the rejection letters. Do any, um, uh, do you, are, were there any that were really uh, fascinating or memorable um, uh, rejections that came in? I mean, just, I have to ask just because that amount of, uh, you know, over 20,000 come in. Is there any stories that come to mind or any, anything there? Yeah, I think that by far the best one okay. um, is when I was starting out in writing, which was 1997, 1998, maybe, I'm roughly guessing the year. Mm-hmm. I came home today and I got a phone call from George Clinton at the Paris Review. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to tell you, that like my heart started racing when I heard his voice on my answering yeah. machine. Uh, call him back. I called him back. And he said, I'd written a story about a man who impersonates a famous ornithologist. And I didn't know that much about ornithology, yeah. but I called him back. I say, I'm not Jacob Appel. He said, we've read the story. And he told me about the story and he clearly had read it. And I said something like, did you like it? And he said, not at all. But I'm always interested in people, especially younger people who are interested in birdwatching. Uh, and he wanted to talk about birdwatching with me. So it was rather a surreal encounter. Yeah. And he actually invited me to go birdwatching with him at some point. But, uh, but he passed away before it came to fruition. It goes, goes to show you never know where those things are going to lead you and what can happen. That's really, really yeah. interesting. Um, I saw you uh, in the doc, you're, you're kind of rattling off um, the, um, all the president's names um, throughout, through, you know, chronologically. Do you have a photographic memory? No, I, I don't have a very good memory at all. I've got to practice over and over. Is that again. what it is, practice? It's amazing. Yeah, wow. practice. I mean, Super. Anybody can learn to recite anything uh-huh. if you practice it enough. Yep. Yeah, you got to put in the work there. That's cool. I was very interested about that. That was that was fun to hear you do that. You know what else is really fun? Um, is seeing how much you uh, <laughs> riled up and, and upset Alex Jones uh, when you were, uh, you know, he was seeing your suggestion or just your discussion about um, lithium in the water and stuff. How did it feel to see Alex Jones get so worked up about something you said? Well, I will confess, and this will probably rile the man up even more. I had <laughs> never heard of him before the documentary. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yep. So I imagine he and I travel in different circles. Sure. He, he's not a household name at the hospital. <laughs> that's, we're that. that's something to be proud of, if you ask me. What would you, yeah. um, what would you say you're kind of um, – it, it's really interesting in so many things. I agree with what you're saying. You're, uh, you comment a lot on social issues. Is, is your worldview um, pretty libertarian? Is that, the, is that a fair way to uh, uh, you know, assess what you speak on? Certainly on social issues, but yeah. I think the better way to think about it is I, I have a lot of respect for people who vehemently disagree with me on mm. many issues. Mm. The one thing I find frustrating is mother thinking. Mm. So if you have a rational argument, you start with a certain premise, come to a certain conclusion. I may completely disagree. I may not want to live in the world you're describing, but I understand that people of goodwill can come to different conclusions. What I find extraordinarily frustrating are people who have hidebound ideas who ultimate reaction is we should keep this because we've always done it this way without really being able to explain why. And I think that often makes the world a much worse place. Uh, I got it. Good, good. I'm glad that I asked that, I asked that question. Yeah, also, it was, uh, it was so fun to see you challenge um, your students and just like, 
it was it was you know always you know always making them think about things different or even deeper taking it one step further and i think that was that's very important when it comes to uh to critical thinking so um what uh uh what what what's next what is is there anything on this uh on your to-do list or bucket list if, if you know to, to use that term um that that is 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 there more schooling in your future where where, where does uh where does jacob go next well, I see now that it, now that Queen Elizabeth is single, I figure I have a shot. I haven't seen this one yet, so that's go time. Those are the to my knowledge. Yep. But, um, thinking thinking much more practically, I and mean, there's always more school in the future. Yeah, um, cool. I probably will go back and get a PhD at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether it'll be in history of medicine or something in historical linguistics remains an open question. Yeah, uh, awesome. But I, I think it, I will never be done with school until they stop accepting. Definitely, definitely. I love that. I it's, it's I'm, I'm all about that. Never stop learning ethos. It's just it's it's so much more fascinating. Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, if I just might ask generally, um, you know, because I I love, you know, as I was ex- researching you, it was fun to listen to your takes on so many different things. And and you know, you did talk a lot about COVID nineteen um, as everyone was this last year. What are your thoughts about us? Uh, uh, America, you know, getting out of this, um, you know, how are you feeling about things right now? So I think in the short run, I, I share both the limited optimism and some of the concerns as many other people, but my, my focus is more on the long run. Mm-hmm. I think the lesson of the pandemic that we have not really absorbed yet is that people having experienced this once are probably going to be much less likely to comply with public health demands in the future. Yeah, um, next time true. we have a need for a lockdown, people are going to just not agree to lock down or a mask mandate uh, the way they did in the first few weeks of New York with the pandemic. Yep. And I think that runs a real risk. Um, what, I, what I tell people over and over again, um, after 9-11, the 9-11 Commission report said that 9-11 was a failure of imagination, meaning a failure of our policymakers to think about what could happen. And Peggy Newman in the Wall Street Journal has described COVID as a failure of imagination. We really didn't think through the risks in a meaningful way and apply them. I think there are several other great threats to our way of living that we really need to be thinking about. Um, antibiotic resistance, geothermal mm-hmm. weather, mm-hmm. Um, a hack on the medical record system, and we really are not imagining enough both the risks and how to prevent them. Mm. Fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, I definitely see where you're coming from there. Um, your most recent book, am I right about this, is Who Says You're Dead? It's my second to most recent book. Your- I had a story collection come out during the pandemic. Okay. Um, but nobody really noticed. If you write a book during a <laughs> pandemic and it doesn't make a sound, um, have you written the book? <laughs> right. Uh, what is uh, just to give uh, our listeners a taste of what what they could find when they look into your books? What is Who Says You're Dead about? Um, Who Says You're Dead is a compendium of seventy nine different ethical dilemmas that come up in health, medicine, science, and then discussions of them in a popular, fun way, talking about how celebrities handle the problem how historical figures have, how ethicists view them. Um, I can give one concrete example that will give people a feel. Nice. Um, so two siblings come to the hospital to see if they are potential kidney donors for their father, and it turns out that there's bad news and there's worse news. Um, the bad news is they're not a mass to donate a kidney, and the worst news is they are not the biological children of their father. Mm. And then the question arises, should you tell them, should you tell the father, should you let them assume that they are still his children, which leads to them having false beliefs about their health care. They might not get genetic screening for their children. And then once you answer that question, the analogous question that has actually come up at least once 
is what do you do with a brother, with a husband and wife who come forward to see if one is a kidney donor for the other? And you discover not only are they a match, but they're actually half siblings. Then do you tell them and risk destroying their marriage, et cetera, et cetera? So those are the kinds of questions that come up. I love that, that you know, just hearing that idea. It's, it's obvious you're challenging um, your readers to think about things and, 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 you know, kind of provoke things and provoke thought and make you think. That's what I think is, you know, very, very noble. Um, is there another book in the pipeline? What's next? Um, there's always a book in the pipeline. Always. I'm working on a essay collection and I'm slowly thinking about writing something longer, a nonfiction book relating to presidential health and illness, which is a field I study academically. And I think, uh, oh, cool. um, there's been a lot of focus on the specifics of individual recent politicians, mm -hmm. but there's really not very much written on the global concept of what it means to be a healthy president. Oh, wow. Wow. That sounds fascinating. Fantastic. Well, I, uh, I hope, uh, I hope uh, one of those submissions that you send out lands in uh, across the margins inbox because I've really enjoyed getting to know your writing. Uh, I've enjoyed getting to know, uh, you know, through, uh, through the documentary, getting to know a little bit about you and actually getting a chance to talk to you. What's, what's clear and what I think is really great is it's with all you have going on, it's, it's, it's everyone in your life in that doc, and it's, it, I can tell just talking to you, uh, you know, you're incredibly modest too, but, I mean, your ambition – uh, uh, to learn is so inspiring to me and just to keep growing your work so fascinating and I really I appreciate you taking the time to come on here and uh, talk a little bit about everything you're into oh, of course and the one thing I always offer whenever I'm on a show or a podcast please uh, if anybody reaches out to me if they'd like electronic versions of my recent, recent book I can send them free PDF um, they should just email me at my email Jacob Mattel, which is one word dot com where they can find it on my website and I'm glad to send them the PDF files for free can you say that email one more time? Jacob M. Appel, all one word, J-C-O-B-M-A-T-P-E-L at gmail.com. Fantastic. And we'll put that in the show notes as well and get the word out. So thanks again. It was uh, such a pleasure talking to you, and uh, uh, good luck with all your writing and all your work out there. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Be well. I'm on my way. I said, wake up, Jacob, day is breaking and I'm on my way. Oh, wake up, Jacob, day is breaking and I'm on my way. Wake up, Jacob, day is breaking and I'm on my way. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.